This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brim. Does more schooling always lead to a better life? Is this optimistic view a certainty everyone around the world can expect? My guest today, Fran Vavris, has recently written a new book that weaves together her 30 years of ethnographic work in Tanzania with her own biography as an academic, mother, and development practitioner. She details the tension between the certainty and uncertainty inherent in education. One of the chapters in the book describes my childbirth experience with my first son, and that was also a case where I thought if I read enough about it and took the birthing classes and ate well and exercised, then it could be a natural birth, and 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 that didn't happen. And so that was another early moment in my uh, life. I was a, grad, a doctoral student at the time when that happened that I also began to wonder about the extent to which being what Dewey calls, you know, sort of a spectator, having a spectator theory of education is sufficient for understanding how we uh, live our lives in practice. Fran Vavris is a professor of comparative and international development education at the University of Minnesota. Her new book, is Schooling as Uncertainty, an Ethnographic Memoir in Comparative Education. Fran Vavris, welcome back to Fresh Ed. Thank you for inviting me, Will. It's a pleasure to be here. So what first brought you to Tanzania about 25 years ago? I went to Tanzania for the first time when I was a master's student at the University of Illinois. I was in an applied linguistics and African studies program, and I had received a three-year foreign language and area studies fellowship to study Swahili. So after the first two years of Swahili study, I was eligible to apply for um, a Fulbright Hayes group project abroad in Tanzania, so Kenya and Tanzania. So I went there for a summer of intensive Swahili study, and this was back in the summer of 1990. So I um, have actually been going to Tanzania for more than 30 years, and I had no idea that 31 years later, I would still be so deeply connected to this country. Wow, that's quite amazing. I mean, to want to learn Swahili, I mean, that's an unusual desire, particularly, you know, in America, you the, the languages that are taught in schools usually are German and French. And so, so why Swahili? Well, perhaps one reason is that um, my father was a linguistics professor and my mother was a, uh, taught Spanish for many years and then English as a second language. So in my family, we were always talking about languages and no one had studied a Bantu language, but I knew that there was something called the Bantu language family. But more directly, my senior year in college, I had the very good fortune of meeting Manning Marable, uh, the late Manning Marable, who uh, some of you may know, wrote the Pulitzer Prize winning book on Malcolm X. And he was a visiting professor at Purdue University where I did my bachelor's degree. And so I was one of only three students in, in his class on African, I think it was called African post-colonial history. And we spent about a third of the semester reading about Tanzania and talking about Julius Nerere, the country's first post-independence president. And I became just completely captivated by the adult education and primary school focus of the Nerede government. And it was Manning Marable who said, do you know there are fellowships where you could, for your master's degree, study Swahili? 
and I had never heard of them before. And so he was the one who set me on this course away from Latin American studies, which is what I was doing at the time, toward African studies. And so I am eternally grateful. When I became a professor at Teachers College, he was a professor at Columbia. And I remember going in to see him and saying, do you remember me? Because you changed my life. And it was a, a really special moment to recognize the influence that a professor can have on a student. It, I mean, and, and everyone knows that, you know, has a professor like that in, in their lives, most likely over their educational journey. Mm -hmm. Did you expect that, you know, when you were sitting in those Swahili classes as a master's student, that you would basically be going back to Tanzania year after year for the next two, three decades? I did not. I had such aspirations. I would listen to my professors in the African linguistics class. He was um, uh, actually from the Democratic Republic of the Congo and a, another professor who was from South Africa. And they would they talked about the, the countries um, from which they came and their love of these places. And I was in a sort of captivated in that sort of exoticizing way that many of us are early on in our careers when we are interested in another part of the world. But it wasn't until the summer that I spent in Tanzania that I realized that there was just something very uh, special for me about being there and trying to understand this language that was quite different from German and Spanish, which I had studied. But more importantly, when I did visit a school, I was filled with questions really about how was it that some kids got into school and others didn't? Why were teachers teaching the way they were teaching? And it just opened up many more questions for me than answers. And so I hoped that I would have the chance to go back and, and can do some research at the time. But what happened, as I document in the first couple chapters of the book, is that I did go back to Tanzania two years later for a year. But I was the trailing spouse, and I didn't find that role to be very satisfying. And I was filled with doubts. I wasn't coping well with this problem and that problem. And um, so I actually left Tanzania for about six weeks during that, that period and left a new spouse, left this country. I don't know if I'm coming back. Something happened that I describe in the book that led me to this kind of moment of existential doubt. And so I, during that period of being back in the United States, I thought a lot about how am I possibly going to be able to do the research in Tanzania and live in Tanzania, which was my goal for you know a couple of years, and do it in a way that would um, you know sustain me and allow me to accept my shortcomings as a as, as a person. So after a while, I realized you know I think I need to give another chance, and so I went back to Tanzania and spent then the rest of this year teaching at the school that becomes the heart of this entire book. So can I ask what changed? Like what made you realize it was time to go back? Well, I spent those six weeks with this group of women who, um, with whom I lived during my master's degree at the University of Illinois, and they became very, very close friends. One of them comes to Tanzania several years later when I was living there, and she's described in the book too. And so these women including my own sister, who was there at the time, said, look, you have unrealistic expectations of everything from marriage to being a researcher. And so, you know, the kind of the, the romance of both is an obstacle to your flourishing, which is this idea in a sense of cruel optimism that we can talk about a little bit later that lies at the center of this story. 
And I also thought that uh, after talking to my parents and hearing them describe their struggles as newlyweds and their difficulties over the years, that, yeah, I did have unrealistic expectations. I thought if I, you know, like read a book about how to be married well, if I read a book about being a researcher, then through this educating of the self, I could do those things that were described in these texts. And uh, as I discuss throughout the book, education is not a way to uh, alleviate uncertainty. It may minimize it in many ways, but it doesn't eliminate it. It's it's like you approached it from an academic standpoint, right? These life problems. Oh, completely, completely. And um, one of the chapters in the book describes my childbirth experience with my first son. And that was also a case where I thought if I read enough about it and took the birthing classes and ate well and exercised, then it could be a natural birth. And, and, and that didn't happen. And so that was another early moment in my uh, life. I was a, grad, a doctoral student at the time when that happened that I also began to wonder about the extent to which being what Dewey calls, you know, sort of a spectator, having a spectator theory of education is sufficient for understanding how we uh, live our lives in practice. So that, you know, that this sort of tension between trying to have certainty in our lives versus the, the inevitable uncertainty that happens and the role of education that plays in helping us sort of navigate that terrain. Did you see that in Tanzania like you saw it in your own life experiences? Very much so. There are many moments where I saw that, and I've tried to um, recount some of those in the book. So the book is organized into six paired uh, sections. So there are two chapters. One focuses a little bit more on my life, and then one draws on this ethnographic project uh, to illustrate the relationship between the two. So for example, this chapter, chapter three, that talks about um, my experience with childbirth, then chapter four, which is paired with it, talks about how my eight-month-old son becomes a sort of source of, of data collection or knowledge generation when we go to Tanzania. And what I learn about women's experiences with childbirth and very high-risk childbirth that was a moment where I could see that even when people plan carefully for a safe birth, it doesn't necessarily happen. So that chapter describes um, actually a couple of deaths in the community the year we were there for my doctoral research. So in one case, the daughter of a teacher at the school a newborn dies because she's taken to a hospital where there weren't a sufficient number of doctors that night. And um, a student at the high school dies due to an asthma attack and he couldn't get to the hospital in time. So even though this young man was part of a very small percentage of the population at the time, about 15%, who had the opportunity to go to school, being in school at that moment in a rural school with no transportation led to his death. It's quite tragic, isn't it? It is. It was a very sobering time. So is this where cruel optimism comes in? Like, so how does the idea of cruel optimism come in then to help us understand, you know, that experience plus, you know, some of the experiences that, that you were having? Yeah, well, so um, Lauren Berlant is one of the scholars who has helped me to think about this project over the several years that it took to write this book. And she has an entire book called Cruel Optimism. So in brief, she defines it as, um, and I'm quoting her here, a relation of attachment to compromised conditions of possibility. 
So it's the idea that when we become attached to something to which we aspire, that attachment itself can compromise our well-being. And so in the uh, latter half of the book, especially, I try to link the idea of cruel optimism to aspirations. And so the work on aspirations is rather vast. People like Arjuna Pottery have written about it, but I draw most extensively on anthropologist James Ferguson's work, which I've been reading since I was a doctoral student in his classic text, The Anti-Politics Machine, came out, I think, in 1990. And his more recent work in kind of critical development studies based on his uh, many years of working in Southern Africa talks about aspirational equality and that there isn't equality in realizing our aspirations if we think about global socioeconomic inequality that makes realizing aspirations much more difficult for some folks rather than others, and especially people from low-income communities in Southern and East Africa in this case. So there are two chapters toward the end of the book where I really look at cruel optimism in relation to aspirations and educational policy and how sudden changes in policy can thwart the aspirations of those who hope to further their lives through education. And one of the chapters is an example based on this year that my family and I spent at a teacher's college in the Kilimanjaro region. So fast forward from my son being eight months old to now he's a sixth grader with a younger brother in third grade. And so we lived at the, the, this college. But anyway, um, I was teaching at the college as well as being a Fulbrighter working on a longitudinal research project nearby. And the school year started in August of 2006. And in October of 2006, the Tanzanian government announced that all teacher training programs for secondary school teachers needed to graduate their students by uh, the end of the year so that they could start teaching in secondary schools in January, rather than graduating in May with a whole additional semester of preparation in a two-year teacher training program. And so what happened then was that we, the lecturers, had to completely redesign our diploma program, cutting out or cutting way down on student teaching opportunities and much of the curriculum that we had. Well, the effects of that change were first, the faculty, my colleagues, were frustrated. They said, you know, we aspire to be lecturers and academics like you, and we know that in the rest of the world, academics do research. And how can we possibly do research when we now have to teach even more quickly, more intensively. And then over the years since then, the college has expanded dramatically into a university with thousands of students from the small group that year. So these, my colleagues have very few opportunities to work as academics doing research. And the second outcome of that policy had to do with the students themselves, these aspiring teachers. They were sent off then to teach without you know, a full program under their belts, without the kind of experience they had hoped for. So my colleagues and I developed a, a program um, that we called Teaching in Action. We invited back our recent graduates from the college and helped them deal with some of the challenges that they were facing in teaching in rural schools with few resources and uh, implementing the learner-centered pedagogy that they had been taught at the college when that was pretty tough in a class of 80 or 100 kids and when senior colleagues didn't support it. So those are some illustrations of the way that an attachment to being um, a first class academic or attachment to being a really good teacher 
may not happen because of policies that change and disrupt one's life. And I should say that the reason Tanzania decided so quickly to expand its secondary school sector was pressure from the World Bank as part of the um, debt forgiveness policies that first they needed to expand primary schooling, which they had done several years earlier. And then the second phase was expansion of secondary schools. So there were secondary schools being built all over the country. And then teachers were supposed to be trained quickly to fill those schools. So it was the international change in policy that affected national policy that affected the lives of teachers. And so my interest over the years in the kind of the anthropology of policy it's based on the possibility of exploring such moments like this, kind of the lived experience of policy change. Hmm. I, I keep wondering, could policy have had the opposite effect of being, instead of cruel, could it actually have been helpful, right? Could a particular policies sort of created spaces where people could then have, you know, more optimistic aspirations than previously? I don't know if, if you've ever saw that in Tanzania, but it makes me think if policy can sort of produce that cruel optimism, I wonder if there's a flip side to that that would be the beneficial optimism, let's say. Certainly. And the, the final chapter of the book looks at that, uh, looks at both the cruel optimism and I guess the more positive optimism. I guess optimism is by definition <laughs> positive. But anyway, what I do is um, from 2000 to 2012, I was involved in a longitudinal project in the same community looking at the changes in a group of youth who were in the final two years of primary school in the year 2000 and what happened to them over the next 12 years when they could have gone on to secondary school. And this was right around the time in 2002 when the primary sector expanded. And then in 2006, they had this big secondary school expansion starting in 2005, actually. So I examined the lives of four youth in this study, two women and two men. And what you see is that they had the opportunity to go to primary school and they all went, well, three of the four went to secondary school. So that's unusual to have three quarters of a group of young people go to secondary school. And over the among all the students in this study, only about 20% did. But these particular four, these kids had something in common from their primary school experience that I thought made it interesting to look at their long-term trajectories. So because of the increased opportunities for secondary schooling and even tertiary education, these young people were striving to get into secondary school and then get into college or university. So policy opened up possibilities, increased their aspirations. But what I show in this chapter is that the young woman who among all of these kids in this longitudinal study had the most clear path to academic success, top kid in her class. Her aspirations were not just to go to university, but she wanted to get a master's degree in economics and become a journalist studying economics. She had a very clear idea of what she wanted to do. And she got into secondary school and got a fellowship to do that. But then her family was not able to pay for her continued schooling because they needed to pay for her two younger siblings schooling. And so she took another option instead of going to university, which she couldn't afford, she was able to get support to go to a teacher training college. And when I interviewed her in 2012, I brought up what she had said she wanted to do in 2000 and 2006. And she, you know, she was choked up and she said, well, clearly I'm not 
doing a master's degree, am I? But the other theme in the book, along with this kind of trying to make life more certain through schooling, is how do we explain our lives when that doesn't happen? And in this community, there's a strong belief that it's God's plan. So she said, well, I think it's God's plan because now I'm a teacher of special ed teacher and I love teaching special ed students. So my life has worked out okay. It's only the young men in this final chapter who through various connections were able to afford to go on in school. So policy made it possible to go to school if you had the resources, but it was still through connections to pay for it that only some smart young kids were able to obtain their aspiration for higher education. Not everyone who who has grit, not everyone who has passed the national exam, who has these cognitive and non-cognitive skills that we seem so focused on in the field of education can use those to reach their goals. And, And that's something I try to show throughout the book that we have very different degrees of aspirational ability or ability to obtain our aspirations. And I think that more attention needs to be focused on that rather than simply teaching kids more stuff in school, because not everyone's going to be able to realize that. There's obviously a clear gender factor at play here, right? The one woman you spoke with, she had lots of aspirations and had clear future plans, but she unfortunately, you know, God's plan put her off on a different path. Whereas the the young men that you followed, they were all able to make the connections, pay for the schooling and actually achieve their their aspirations. You know, that's an important point, Will. And I've thought about this a lot, um, especially as I was revising the, the final draft of this book last year as I was sitting in Minneapolis, less than a mile away from, you know, a couple miles away really from where George Floyd was killed. And the burning of the police precinct was just a few blocks from my house. And I started thinking a lot about why this book, why these 30 years of my life have been so focused on gender, gender relations and socioeconomic inequality, but almost to the absence of a focus on race. And so what I've thought about, and I, I do note this in, in the introduction, is that when I started graduate school in the 1990s, the international development agenda was so focused on girls' education. Uh, there was just in this belief that if we could just get enough girls, mainly in Africa and Asia, into school, they would have fewer children and they would have better health outcomes and they would become the engines of economic development, all of which has some support. I mean, I'm not saying the research there is uh, inaccurate, but that approach to just getting girls into school doesn't address many challenges that women have, even once they have completed secondary or tertiary education in using that education to change their lives. So I think my focus on gender over these years has been because of that starting point and the fact that I have experienced you know, gender-based discrimination and that it, it really felt very close to me. But what I realized in looking back over these years and the reasons why race wasn't more pronounced was first that you know, racial histories and racial politics are very different in the United States and in Tanzania. And so to assume that those are going to be the same the world over, I think, is a bit simplistic. On the other hand, I was uh, rereading notes from one case in particular, notes from when I took students to Tanzania on short-term study abroad uh, programs twice while I was a professor at Teachers College. And I remember and wrote about being in a taxi 
uh, with um, an African-American student and we were passing a big traffic um, an accident that had happened on the road. And she turned to me and said, if we have an accident, I sure hope I'm with you when it happens. And I was like, why would that be? And she said, because you're white. And then whoever comes to take us to the hospital will know I'm a black American and I ought to be treated like you rather than being an African. And that has stayed with me all these years. I thought that's just a, an awareness of being an American and being black might be different from being African and being black. And my whiteness marks me as foreign right away. And thus I would most likely be taken to, you know, the, a more expensive hospital, a better hospital. So there are just these clear blind spots in my analysis and my research that would, I think, be, be markedly different if I were starting a doctoral program today when uh, awareness of, you know, structural racism and the legacies of that and the conditions of that around the world are much more pronounced. It's such an interesting sort of combination of reflection and memoir and looking back at your sort of very long career uh, of empirical work in some of the same parts of Tanzania for so long. Mm -hmm. And you have all of these journal entries and old letters that you go through, and of course your old writings. And, and you know, this issue of race is really, you know, it's, it's quite powerful to bring it up as, as sort of being an absence mm -hmm. in some of your, your work. And so I just wonder, are there other cringe, sort of cringeworthy moments that you've realized as you've been poring over these old journal entries and letters that, that you realize, wow, I, it's quite problematic that I didn't bring up some of these issues or, you know, what else did you uncover about yourself in a way? Well, there were so many cringeworthy moments that that was one point, one of the reasons I almost stopped writing this book. I was embarrassed by uh, some of my letters home in the 1990s in particular, and um, even some of my field note entries I could see were not as objective as I had um, hoped they would be based on my research methods classes. Uh, so I do write in the introduction about the influence of Ruth Behar, another anthropologist, on my work. And she describes being a, what she calls a vulnerable observer and how she tried to write about both her research and the periods of her life during which she was doing research, how uh, studying Having, experiencing a death in her family and looking at death in Spain made the research more meaningful or, or provided different insights. And so I decided that I would include some of these cringeworthy moments in the book so that uh, the next generation of scholars realizes that more senior people were not born understanding the phenomena that have captivated that you know that may have captivated them all of their lives, or you know, not being these wise figures that they think we are, which we're not. But we have grown over the years, and so I include in particularly the earlier chapters material that I might otherwise not want to share. And one of those examples I can give you is from the second chapter of the book when. After returning to the United States for this these six weeks and thinking through my life, I returned to Tanzania to this high school um, that I call Njema Secondary School. And um, the first week there teaching, the assistant principal, who becomes a very, very close friend and, and still is to this day, takes me into the canteen where the teachers are eating lunch. And um, female teacher grabs a, a spoon and takes it to the spigot and washes it. And, and my friend says to me, well, we only have four spoons to share among the 20 or so teachers. And so she hands me the spoon still dripping with water. 
And I knew from past experience that untreated water for me often leads to stomach ailments. And, and But I didn't want to embarrass her by drying off the spoon or washing it myself. So I just plunged in and started eating my beans and rice with the spoon. And this happened day after day. I would try to get there earlier and wash the spoon myself. And it never happened. People were so generous. Like, let me give you my spoon. So by the end of the week, I'm sick. So I think... A solution would be to go to the market nearby and for what to me was a mere $20, I could buy an entire set of cutlery for the staff and give it to them as kind of a welcome gift. So I mentioned this to my friend the next week that I would like to do this. And you know, he says to me in his most you know, polite voice, I'm sure he's thinking inside all kinds of things. He says, Madam, we have many more needs at the school than a new set of cutlery. And if you would like to make a donation, here are the things we actually need. I was terribly embarrassed realizing that what I thought was a problem was not what the staff at the school thought was a problem. These are folks who were often not getting paid because the students hadn't paid their tuition because of the economic crisis in the country at the time. Mm -hmm. So buying new spoons was really a low low on the list. And so I, I try to think about that using a, a concept that my colleague uh, at Minnesota, Ruth Bay Shirazi, describes as I think that, you know, the violence of hospitality. And that I think is, is um, emblematic of a lot of work in international development. Let us help you to do what we think is a problem, even if that's not your problem. So I thought about that that situation, that chapter is called Spoons, Strikes, and Schooling, because there was a student strike later on that year because of the bad conditions at the school for the students. <laughs> as really kind of a, a good example of what has troubled me over the years about international development, even though I've also you know been involved in development projects. I mean, so your work reflecting back on your own personal experiences in Tanzania and your research in Tanzania over a few decades, have you thought about any sort of larger critiques about the development industry itself that you've sort of, you know, both researched and been been a part of for so long? Yes, there are a number of critiques that I have made in previous works. Um, so I don't, I'm not going to replay those here, but two strike me as especially important. And I, I think these are more lessons learned um, that also serve perhaps as critique. And one of them has to do with time. Mm. It takes a long time to build relationships and relationships are the way through which we generate more meaningful knowledge. So the short-term consultancy work that many of us have engaged in, or many people engage in frequently, has its place. But that's not the kind of knowledge generation that I think is most important because it leads to rather superficial understanding. And even after living in this community on several occasions and, and continuing to work there and have close relationships, there's still so much I know I don't understand. Yet, I hope this book is an illustration of how long-term relationships can provide insights into the lived experiences of policy, the lived experiences of schooling, the uncertainties that plague people's lives in a way that I think someone who has spent three weeks in Tanzania would not be able to understand. And the second lesson is one that I've taken from James Ferguson's work. He wrote a book called The Expectations of Modernity. I think that's right. And in that book, he describes what he calls development in reverse. And I think this is a way of questioning the assumption of linearity in international development and in development studies more broadly. We assume that progress 
development is linear, that once you reach a certain stage, then inevitably you'll reach a next highest stage and so forth, you know, until you reach this end point, which ironically looks like the United States. Um, and I say that very sarcastically. But development isn't linear. I think about the experiences this past year of living through a pandemic, massive unemployment, 510,000 deaths just in the United States, political upheaval, the rise of fascism, nationalism. Uh, these are things that aren't supposed to happen once a country reaches a certain stage of development. So if we think about development as being precarious, as being uncertain, I think that it helps us to be cautious about our declarations about the accomplishments of development and even the potential for schooling to make certain any kind of progress. Well, Fran Vavris, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed again. It's always a pleasure to talk and congratulations on your new book. Thank you so much, Will. Fran Vavris is a professor at the University of Minnesota. Her new book is Schooling as Uncertainty. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Fresh Ed's team includes Sherry Yang, Nushi Waba, Fatih Akhtas, Ing Jung Cho, Obafemi Ungunwe, Dion Jiang, Joe Fei, Annabella Boteng, Anya Lin, and Phyllis Manesh. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, NORAG, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com slash donate. Again, that's freshedpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week. <laughs>